resources in our own economy outside the resources of God. So we start to do things in our own ability, in our own resources, and we start to look at those things that are outside uh, of ourselves. And we, you know, maybe it's a, a decision, a financial decision. You might want a new car or something new, and you're like, well, we have no money. I haven't saved anything. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll just put it on the credit card. And, you know, I got a great job. And, you know, if I work enough overtime, but who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. What does it mean to trust God in our lives? So often we find ourselves confronting our daily struggles and decisions all on our own. We seek human solutions to problems, and while we may find temporary relief, we quickly find ourselves in the same conundrum day after day. As Pastor Mark begins to lead us through the book of 1 Samuel, we're reminded of our desperate need for God's intervention in our lives. Instead of being a last resort when we are facing a decision or struggle, God should be the first place we go. We may not always like his solutions, but we can trust that he knows best. Now let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and join Pastor Mark with today's edition of Come Alive. Chapter 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohoam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah, and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from this city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, and also the two sons of Eli and Hophnius and Phineas of Eli, Hophnius and Phineas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Let's stop right there. We're going to focus on verse one right now. It says, "Now there was a certain man." of Ramathon Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohoam, the son of Elihu, and the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. So we have a man here that we know that has a religious background. And so with this religious background, you've got to think he's a, a man of some stature because we, in most of the time when you see somebody's name, they usually don't give that many. They'll, they'll name a father and a and a, and a grandfather, or a grandfather, and a great-grandfather. But here, we, we get a list of names, so he must have been somebody of some type of notoriety. And so, in Old Testament times, we see that Elkanah says he had two wives. He has two wives in verse 2. The name of one was Hannah, the, other, the name of the other was Peninnah. And if you know anything about this story, Peninnah could be considered a piranha. She's kind of a mean lady. She's not very kind to Hannah. And so he's got two wives. And in Old Testament times, polygamy was a common practice. One man would marry a multitude of wives. Though this occurred, it was never, ever really a good idea um, for this to happen. Just because God's word records it, and I'll say this, you know, you hear a lot of people going, well, it's in the Bible, you know, it's in the Bible, so it must be okay. Let me say this. Just because God's word records it doesn't mean 
God's word recommends it. So just because it's recorded doesn't mean it's recommended. And so for a time, God had tolerated this practice, but it was never his intention. And how do we know that? Well, if we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, we learn from creation account in Genesis that when God formed the first man, Adam, he provided him not with two wives or three wives, but one, with one wife, Eve. And so I was reading recently in the Middle East, archaeologists have unearthed a cuneiform tablet entitled The Top Ten Reasons No Man in His Right Mind Would Want Two Wives. So here's the translation from that ancient Semitic text in the Chaldean, and this is from the Chaldean to the English. We'll start with number 10. Number 10 is twice as many birthdays and anniversaries to remember. If you have two wives, number nine, you have to pick who gets the second garage door opener. If you have two wives, by the time two wives take a shower, there's no more hot water. Number seven would be, who can afford two dozen roses on Valentine's Day? Number six is, when it comes to choices, it's now two against one. And then number five, your one drawer and a half a foot of closet space gets cut in half. You have two honeydew lists. And do you really want to decide who gets the master bedroom? You have two mother-in-laws. And the number one reason is PMS twice a month. That's why you would not want to have multiple wives. So apparently, this man, Elkanah, had never read this top ten list, obviously, for he had two wives. One wife was named Hannah, the other was Penaniah, and from Elkanah's experience, you can add one more reason to this list of why two wives are not a good idea. They just might not get along. And you will see why, and we're going to talk about why Elkanah had two wives. I don't think his intentions as a little boy was to, man, one day I'm going to have two wives. I'm going to have a harem of women. I don't think that was his intentions. But like most of us, Elkanah has failed in in one area of, of walking with the Lord, and we're going to look at that. So what we have here is a spiritual man, obviously, a spiritual man. And if you're taking notes, he's a man who lacked in trusting God. That's when you think about it, and you're like, okay, I don't see, but you will. And so he lacked in trusting God's timing. He lacked in trusting God. And I think we have all made the same mistake in our lives, maybe not with two wives, but with certain decisions, with other things. We pray and we say, God, I know you want me to be able to do this, or you want me to have this. And so sometimes we tend to rush ahead of God. And when we do this, We will most likely, most of the time, I would say 95%, maybe 98% for some of you, will mess things up in a very severe way. So what happens is we begin to place into our own ability and we look for the resources in our own economy outside the resources of God. So we start to do things in our own ability, in our own resources, and we start to look at those things that are outside Uh, of ourselves. And we, you know, maybe it's a a decision, a financial decision. You might want a new car or something new. And you're like, well, we have no money. I haven't saved anything. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll just put it on the credit card. And, you know, I got a great job and, you know, if I work enough overtime, but who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? Who knows if your company's going to fold that, you know, they don't go out and go, Hey guys, can you pray? We, We might not make it. They don't tell you that. And the reason they don't tell you that 
is because if you found that out, that in four weeks your company was going to fold and close, how many people would jump ship? Well, most people would. Everybody would leave, and they wouldn't even be able to finish their last project or whatever it may be. So you find out that something bad happens, and you realize, oh, I went ahead of the I didn't really pray about this. I mean, it felt right, and you know, to to just get that little thing wasn't that big of a deal. It was, you know, and it winds up being a huge deal. Winds up being a huge mess, and so we tend to go out and, and and we begin to place into our own ability and look for the resources in our own economy outside of the resources of God. We really don't consider what He thinks or what He wants for us as being best. So Elkanah with the two wives. And it was probably reasonable to him to have these two wives, you know, and it kind of falls into the lines of Jewish legality, if you would. It, 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 to have a first wife and, and, and she was barren, right? So, you know, maybe Hannah was that first wife because it says he loved her. We know that he loves her. He gives her double portion. So maybe she was the first wife and she's barren. And in this agrarian culture, they would need children to help run the farm or run, run the business, whatever it may be. And yeah, he had servants and things like that, but still he wanted to pass on his family inheritance to somebody. And so it became a legality. So this first wife back then, if she was barren, you were allowed to divorce her, to put her away, to be rid of her. But we know that he loves her because she's still with him. And some people will say, well, it's because he just wanted two wives. And I would say, I don't know, because we know he's a spiritual man. And we're going to look at that in a minute. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, he had two wives, the name of one Hannah, the name of the other Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. So we know we can't blame Elkanah. You know, it's not his fault that Hannah doesn't have children because Penaniah has children. So Hannah now knows and once these children are born, knows that it's her. It's on her now, that she's the barren one. And so he loved Hannah, and he wanted to help her. So he, he probably thought, well, I'll have children with one wife, and I'll love Hannah. And now that's God's best for Elkin. That's probably what he's thinking, right? You might be thinking that. But is it is it God's best for Elkanah? It's not. It's really not, not and I'll show you why. See, just because a proposal happened and a marriage takes place doesn't mean it's God's best. And so we see Elkanah took matters into his own hands. And we got to be careful when we do this. In ancient times, barrenness was the heaviest burden a woman could bear. And since children are considered, you know, a blessing from the Lord, the inability to have children was unfairly viewed as a divine curse. So you know, Hannah's looking at herself in the mirror every day, and she's not allowed to, to have children. And she's probably thinking to herself, man, this is, this is a curse. This is a curse of God. I'm barren. This other lady's got kids. And, and Peninnah, being probably loved the least, Elkanah probably doesn't spend a lot of time with her and hang out with her. She probably, that's the way she gets back at Hannah. And, and we'll see this later on. She, they go up to a city. Verse 3, to worship. And what they do there is probably, you know, they got to load into the SUV or the minivan. 
and they all got to ride together. And, you know, probably at home, Hannah and, and uh, Peninnah probably didn't have a whole lot of day-to-day interaction with each other. They probably knew how to stay out of each other's way. But when there was a crossing, Peninnah was probably like, hey, where are your kids? Oh, yeah, you, you can't have kids. Sorry about that. I mean, just rude to poor Hannah. So again, Hannah deeply longed for a child and bore this awful stigma. And over the years, it wore on her and her desire went unfulfilled. We don't know how many years. And again, verse 3, it says, This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Elkanah is a man who seeks the Lord. We can see that. He, he travels to go worship. You know, a lot of us don't travel very far to come and worship. But there are people in other countries. Uh, I was reading a story, and I shared with you guys that there are some people in China that will travel and wake up at maybe 3 o'clock in the morning and walk three to four hours just to attend a Bible study where somebody might have a page of a Bible. And so, and, and they might spend three or four hours worshiping and then go home and do all the chores at the farm or wherever they're living or go to work and work someplace. And so there, there are places like that. In El Salvador, I got to see a place that was like that where people would walk for miles or try to catch a ride with friends for, for long distances to go to a Bible study that was outside and just have a roof. And if it didn't have a roof, they would meet under the shade trees in a very agricultural community. So, you know, you can see that this man is a, is a worshiper and he wants to seek what the Lord has, but he didn't on this one time. Elkin is a man who seeks the Lord, but he's a man that seeks what the, the Lord, or if you want to in your, in your Bible, if you take notes or highlight, circle Lord of hosts. We're going to look at that. And the meaning is that God has complete control over all the angelic beings, Lord of hosts. But another meaning, and again, if you think about those beings, those angels, those angelic hosts, those beings are waiting for his command to take care of those things that seem to be kind of out of sync here on earth. And so Elkanah has the knowledge of this. He knows. He's going to, to go worship the Lord of hosts. But God doesn't just have the command or the power to just command the angels or angelic beings. He doesn't just have that angelic power at his fingertips. But the second implication for this Hebrew word is very interesting. The Lord of hosts is this. The Lord of hosts is also, it means the host of heaven, or in, in he has power over the planets is what it means. Power over the planets. What's that mean for us? Well, we could say he's the God of the universe. We see that. And who has power over every angelic being. And you mean, and you might be saying, well, you mean to tell me, Mark, what you're saying right now, you mean to tell me he, he can't trust, you know, the Lord and, and, and his perfect timing? If he knows this, why doesn't he trust? And, well, I don't know. You and I can learn a lesson here that we need to allow God to deliver certain things in our lives. And God determines what he will deliver, whether it be a perfect child, that perfect gift, that perfect spouse, that perfect job that perfect whatever, he, he will allow that perfect child for this perfect couple. God can do that, but Elkanah did not trust in God's timing, in God's perfect timing. 
And so what happens, we come here on, on Sundays and Saturdays, and, and the question I have for us is, do we really realize who we worship? And this is 2012. As Randy said, a new year, a new beginning, the first day of the week. Every day is a new beginning. You open your eyes, and we're going to do communion, and, and you know some of the songs, that, are we going to stand in awe of God? You know, are we going to stand and sit there and be like, Lord, I'm in awe of you or just that? Oh, man, I got too many things to do. I I made a mess of my life, so I got to deal with all that stuff. And no, you do need to deal with it, but that's not your first focus. You know, this morning we we had a a person in our leadership meeting saying, you know, there was all these things and and quiet time got away from me and blah, blah. and, And as I got back with the Lord and really started reading and praying and seeking what God wants, it's different now. I can handle life. And that's the great thing is that you can, and even walking in, we said, hey, dude, you know, we can see a little bit of difference in your demeanor, the way you, you know, the way you walk and, and talk and hang out. You're just different. And it wasn't like he was glowing, but he kind of was. And it was a great thing to see, to see that you know, just by knowing what God's heart is, and that's what it is, is just knowing what's, what is God's heart? Lord, what is your heart in this situation? Now, does he care whether you eat at Burger King or McDonald's? Some would say, well, he cares if you eat at Chick-fil-A. But I mean, for those of you who don't know, it's a Christian company. But, I mean, does he really? Does he care whether your football team wins or loses? You know, does he really care in those things? Probably not. Probably not. But what he cares about is your day-to-day decisions that affect the way people see you and the way you live out your life. And if you make a decision without consulting God and it becomes a heavy burden for you that you can no longer lift, carry, or, or handle, then are you really glorifying God in that? And so we're going to look at what that means when we do that. So Elkanah has knowledge of this. And we have knowledge of it. So do we come here? Do we really realize who we worship? The the God who has angelic hosts to bid his every will? And, you know, you might say, well, I know I'm supposed to wait on the Lord, but waiting's hard. Waiting's hard. I don't have patience. It is. I'll tell you, it is hard. I mean, especially when the due date is here and you're still waiting on this side of the line and you're like, it didn't come. It didn't come. God must not care. No, no, no. Church, he cares. It's just in his timing. He's in control of that. And, well, you know, I got a fine. Is that what God wants me to do is to pay that money? Maybe. Maybe if it teaches you a lesson. Maybe that's the slap on the hand or the bottom that you need to say, hey, you know what? Don't jump ahead of God anymore. To get you to realize that he's in control. Well, how does God do this? I mean, why would he let me do this? And I would have to say, really? You would ask that question knowing that you can choose. You have free will. He, he will. I let my son choose to do certain things and, and let him learn those lessons. Again, it goes back. How do you know what hot is without being burned? How do you know? And it's like it's the dumb kid that keeps burning his hand and sticking his hand in the fire. Oh, that hurts. I got blisters. When they go away, I'm going to try it again. You would probably say, man, that kid's got problems. Somebody needs to teach him this isn't the right thing. 
And sometimes some of us as his kids, we do that. We, we stand in the fire and go, man, what's that? You smell something burning? I don't know why it hurts so bad. Or why I got these blisters all over me. Anybody know what that is? And it's like, man, you're standing in the fire. Step away from the flames and you won't get hurt. Don't even get near it. And some of us, it takes a little more. And others, one lesson. And then others of us, we get so scared we don't try anything. But see, when you refuse the weight like Elkanah, you start to tap into your own resources. We start to tap into our own thinking, thinking we know. You know, I used to know a guy, and, and, and I bump into people like this all the time. Man, they, they, they think they know, and they come up, and, and they'll sit there and see something taking place, and they'll tell you that they see, and you're like, you're totally, you're looking at it, and you're so prideful, you're still saying that it's not true, that this thing is happening right here in front of us, and you don't think it's going to work? I mean, Really? But some people are like that. They tap into their own resources, into their own thoughts. And the next thing you know, pressure begins to mount. Pain begins to pile up. And all of a sudden, there's this hurt. If you'll turn with me to 1 Peter, in the New Testament, we're going to look there and see what this says to us and how this applies to Elkanah. 1 Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 5. So once you get to 1 Peter, turn to chapter 5. If you have a highlighter, a pen, a pencil, something, circle these verses. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6. And it says, therefore, verse 6, chapter 5 of 1 Peter, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Look at that again. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. The the context of the first half of that is that God is greater than you are. If you need a real simple translation, God is greater than you are. You are not greater than him. And if you acknowledge that he's greater than you are, and he's mighty, then you acknowledge that you are not. If you say, yes, I agree, God's greater than me, then you have to say, on the other hand, then I'm not. I'm not greater. I'm not greater than God. You're saying you actually, when you acknowledge this, what you're saying is I actually know less than God. The people we meet in the book of 1 Samuel are quite the characters. We meet a woman who gave her only child to God and a boy who heard and answered the call of the Lord. We also find a frightened king and a brave shepherd boy, both of whom would lead the people of Israel. Through each of these people and circumstances, we discover God's hand at work in powerful ways. We are so glad you tuned in today to Come Alive. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play or iTunes to keep up to date with the latest from Come Alive and the church behind it. Calvary Chapel Katy is led by Pastor Mark Martinez and a staff of Jesus-loving, friendly people who do all we can to spread the good news of the gospel to all who walk through our doors. If you're in the Katy area, Tracy has an invitation for you. We'd absolutely love to have you join us here at Calvary Chapel Katy for our Sunday morning service. 
We're now meeting at Wood Creek Elementary School, located at 1155 Wood Creek Bend Lane. It's exciting to be in a new space, and we hope you're able to come worship the Savior and study the Bible with us, filling our new home with praise and prayer. Give us a call for more information and directions, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Our phone number is 281-391-5503. That's 281-391-5503. Thanks for listening today to Come Alive.